0: Is there a particular question or a subject that you want to hear about, or do you just want to know what's on my mind?
1: Hmm. Well, yeah, um, eating illness and death all good <laughs> and very poignant at, hmm. for, for both of us anyway and right now, in one way or another, either personally or with friends. Hmm. Um, you know, and just for me, especially death seems to be coming way too quickly without... Um, Adequate preparation yet. Mm-hmm. So, any you want to reflect on that? Okay. I guess that's the great thing about Dhamma. It's there's always something that is applicable pretty immediately. Mm-hmm. There isn't a waste in Dhamma. Gee, I, yeah. I didn't need to hear that one. <laughs> 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 Usually pretty poignant. You know, oh, I, I can be reminded of that or yeah, I still need to work on that or wow. I never
0: thought of that. <laughs> of them, so. You know, they say there's there's three ways to um three interrelated uh, characteristics of, of a phenomenon. That the things are impermanent, that they're unsatisfactory, and they're not self. Um and uh Sometimes they say that a, an individual might be able to get the penetrating insight into one or the other of those facets, and that's how they get launched into liberation. But you don't get one without the others. So once, once you get one of them, it entails the other two. Okay. My teacher Bhante Gunaratana, especially in his later years, it seemed like so often he was speaking of anicca, impermanence, and how it manifests to him in his meditation that it's like what he experienced was this continuous flow of anicca and mm. and then through his life, and, and and it was something that was clearly... Kind of a, a, comfort and a um, like a benchmark for his his whole practice. And so he was always like urging, "If you can just see the anicca." And then um, my uh, the vice abbot at the Bhavana Society, my second teacher that I had when I was uh, getting my initial formation in the Dhamma, it was Monte Rahula. And he's always on about anatta, non-self. Um, he wrote a, a small book of uh, excerpts uh, from the suttas on the topic of anatta. And he spent, I think he spent a lot of years um, developing his, uh, the perception of non self. And in particular, I know that when Bhante Rahula was a young man, he had some difficult. Psychological formations around um, impatience or anger and things like that, and he his experience was to the extent that he could catch hold of non-self, the things that used to trigger him didn't trigger him anymore. And so, you know, the the one I had a a student. It just on an occasion I met him and and I, I had a student with me who was suffering with anger, and I, I knew about his history, and so I asked him about anger. And, and uh, what he said was that, you know, with mindfulness, as soon as anger arises, you can see in this very clear way how it arises and what the conditions are of its arising, and, and, um, and be able to avoid, to some degree, you can avoid proliferating with anger. But... Mindfulness is actually too late, because by the time anger has arisen to the conscious level, it's already been percolating in the subconscious for maybe several seconds, and already all of the the physical uh, aspects of the body have been activated, and the adrenaline and so forth is is flowing, in a lot of of mental you know formations are are already being stirred. So mm-hmm. it's like if you only rely on mindfulness to deal with the afflictive emotional things, responses that can come along, uh, you're always doing like five times the amount of work that you need to do because the barn door is open and the horses already run away and you've gone going chasing after trying to trying to you know get things back to settle down. Uh, but if one develops the perception of anatta, um, the trigger doesn't get pulled in the first place. So there's no... The emotion, the afflictive reactivity just doesn't happen. And so then one has uh, this much better space for practice and one has saved so much energy that gets uh, tied up with those things and all of that energy then is uh, liberated and and it gives a whole other level of like, strength and everything that's that's available for doing the doing the work of insight. And I've often felt I'm a perfect daughter for these two um, teachers because to me um, dukkha is the gateway that is the most clear to me and for which I see actually so much benefit from investigating and studying and developing the perception and really, really clear awareness of what Dukkha is and how it works. Um, The sutta that um, we're going to be uh, covering in this upcoming retreat, the Dattavibhanga Sutta, it starts out with the um, uh, 18 uh, phenomenon that happened through the Six Senses and the Three Feelings. Um, and uh, uh, what it says is that, uh, and this is, this is sort of, um, it's kind of like that's the problem statement. Like what's going on with our sense, the sense gates and the feeling feelings, that's our problem. And then the meditations leading to uh, non-agitation and perfecting uh, uh, freedom and, and uh, liberation is the answer to that problem. Mm-hmm. But, but then this uh, first uh, discourse that's at the beginning of that sutta, uh, I think is also a meditation in itself. Uh, he says that based on the eye and the external object. Um, the mind explores objects conducive to um, grief, uh, conducive to joy, and conducive to neutral feeling. Uh, what I think is that we've all had the training when we took our course in mindfulness and meditation to learn how to not get absorbed into objects but instead to uh, hold the awareness at the sense gate or at some internal aspect of the mind uh, as a, a discipline during meditation um, And yet, in real life, we have to go out and explore objects. You've got to figure out how much salt to put in the pickles. You've got to know if the car is working or not, or what needs to be done to uh, repair something, or what needs to be done to make things operate as you wish them to operate, or... Is the situation uh, safe for me or is it not safe for me? Mm -hmm. Or if there's uh, some uh, social problem, uh, we don't want to be like tilting at windmills trying to uh, overcome some trivial side effect of the social problem. We want to find out what's... The essence. What's the real mechanism? Why this social problem is arising? And is there something that can be said or done that, that can allay the uh, the uh, situation in a, in a way that's that's more to the heart, that's more effective? So, you know, in all of these things, we're all of the time we're out here exploring objects. So, I feel that that uh, passage. I feel that almost anything in the sutras that you look at uh, ought to be properly taken as if it is a guided meditation. You can take a, take any of the nikayas, and just open a page and read any sentence. And most of the time, you could just take that and just make that an object of contemplation. Can you understand what it's pointing to? Can you look internally to your own experience and to find within your own experience the phenomenon that, is being pointed to and are you able to uh, see it in a way that's uh, bringing the wisdom factor to bear on, on, on your own experience. So then um, uh, my idea is um, that that so take is permission. I'm just trying to find an object. Here's an object. And, and then uh, I could... Um, as part of a meditation retreat, I could, you know, explore the subject. You know, what's it what's it really like? What color is it? What shape is it? What what use is it? Um, is it a good or bad example of what it's supposed to be? And then When uh, the mind is exploring an object, what is happening? Understand, you know, what... How does it happen? How does it get from just, okay, this is an object, to then some other object or this object in a different circumstance that causes the heart to lift up in joy? (laughs) Or or that causes the heart to... um, be bogged down with frustration or anxiety. Uh, how? What's you know to to really just mm. investigate that, um, and in part, what the sutta answers when it goes from that part about the eighteen experiences, six senses times three kinds of feeling, and then it goes from there to uh, looking in terms of the elements um then at that level you um, would see that looking at something in terms of elements that the sensual uh, passion or the lusters or whatever would tend to be abstracted out of it and so you you wouldn't be experiencing the food is delicious or the bed is being so soft or the person is being so 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 beautiful or so handsome, Um, but you would be just merely seeing it as elements and in that way the tendency for the joy and grief would be allied and the mind would be more Mm. inclining towards neutral feeling which is giving a space of practice. And then uh, likewise if you um, look at the uh, elements in terms of, non, of not me and not mine. That the the um, you know the, I guess the stringiness of the tendons in in my body and the and the stringiness of the string is just stringiness and the hardness of the body and the hardness of the earth or the mountain is just hardness, or the hardness in my body and the hardness in your body is just hardness. It's it's not, there's nothing personal there. And we might notice that our tendency of emotional reactivity is very much connected with how personal we're taking it. That if the phenomenon is affecting our own individual status, or our own individual Welfare, our own individual sense of safety, our own individual sense of gain. To that extent, there's a tendency for the like and dislike to to rise up in the strong way. But when we remove the individuality from it, then again it goes towards neutral. Uh, and with uh, neutral feeling, which, if it especially if it uh, matures to equanimity, then um instead of feeling, uh, feeling in a way um, pushed or pulled and having that tension um, uh, pleasant feeling is like a something that nature gives us uh, I mean we call it pleasant feeling, but if it was an amoeba and you put some um vinegar or something into the petri dish and the amoeba's all start running away. You could say that the amoeba is having an unpleasant feeling or you could say, well we don't really can't really say exactly what they're experiencing. But we we can see the behavior. And just the same way that in kind of like raw nature, that unpleasant feeling is what makes us shrink and put away and and withdraw or, or try to get rid of something because, you know, it's not good for us. And the same thing, the pleasant feeling is really about things that um, in some kind of very primitive way seem to be good for us, and so then we want to keep them, we want to bring them close and keep them. Uh, so a mature person is not pushed to always be behaving according to their feelings. They've got reason is um, intervening there, and they're making sort of like bring you some wisdom or, or uh, more just some intelligence to say, well, just because it's pleasant doesn't mean I have to eat it. Um, just because it's unpleasant doesn't necessarily mean I should reject it. Um, and yet to overcome that the feeling with reason is stressful. So then, we experience a different kind of a constant stress by going um, sort of in opposition to the feelings. Um, we were having a conversation before about pain and and how um, I've had a very minor level of chronic pain since two thousand, and it and then except for on one occasion in which I had some other. Injury or something going on and I was given a medicine that took away all the pain. So for a couple of days I had generally no pain. It was like such a noticeable thing. say, wow, it's 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 like a stress. It's like it's a stress that's always there. And you don't even see it because it's always there. That's what Dukkha is. So Vedana. So having this fe- feeling Especially the joy and grief side, or the like and dislike side, is always stressful. That's why it's said that feeling is dukkha, even even pleasant feeling is dukkha, Um, because um, of the stress of not. It's not really the right thing to always follow them. So you're always there's a certain amount of inner resistance and so forth like that. so then uh, when we see this, see, this is why I'm saying my gate is dukkha because I, I, it seems to me the thing that's a, the meaningful practice to me is to wh- not while being withdrawn from life or withdrawn from experiences and experiencing the you know, seclusion from those difficulties. But even in the midst of surfing on all of the ups and downs of what happens in ordinary life, seeing it so clearly that somehow or other, um, the grip just goes, it doesn't have a grip anymore. And it becomes... You know, just like um, we're in this comfortable room and looking out the window, and it was raining before, and then the sun came out. And I said, okay, there's the sun, there's the rain, and the rain didn't touch us, and the sun's not hurting us either. And so so then it, it the whole thing becomes just like lighter and lighter and more thin and more... Bearable. It, it it it's like a, it's like a wearing instead of wearing a heavy um, armor, that you're carrying a cloak which is made of some kind of like gossamer that's just so thin and so uh, you know like nothing, and then eventually like it, it just it goes completely, and then one is still able to be out there in the world, on the front line, at the barricades, you know, at, in the midst of, of the action, and uh, the, the thing that, it, the, the bond that's causing this constant tension and stress, or the, the pull, somehow it's, it just cut, it went away. And then one is able to be completely at ease, not agitated, not aroused, and not not disturbed. And that's why in the Dattaribhanga Sutta, one is said to be the sage at peace, because the mind is not disturbed by anything. Uh, but that undisturbed mind is not secluded from Dukkha in the sense of not knowing Dukkha. It's like uh, the sage can know Dukkha without participating in Dukkha. You can see that distinction. Um, And so um, I I feel that um, because we have this training to Train ourselves to avoid getting lost in obsessing about objects during our cushion practice that a person, a student of meditation might make the mistake of thinking that when they do get involved with objects that they're doing something unskillful and then uh, they don't want to, it's kind of like you don't want to look at it you want to just get away from it because it's unskillful Uh, but instead instead of just um, withdrawing so quickly to just kind of like stay with it and just say, oh, well, oh, this is really pleasant or, oh, this really hurts and to just relax with that experience and allow the experience and know the experience uh, and, and and somehow from that, from being able to like be really fully present without flinching, to have like a kind of like a big open heart that is able to just kind of like be there and not turn away from anything, that then uh, that's the other gate. So just the same thing that Bhante Gunaratana gets from any channel, what Bande really gets from Anatha, I'm getting it from Dutta. <laughs> and, and so, like... When a bad thing happens, Mantegi knows that it's impermanent, and Mantegi Rahula knows that um, it's, not, it's not his problem. And I know, okay, so what did I expect? <laughs> this is samsara, <laughs> Now the Buddha was right. Now there is dukkha. So, that's my reflection.